0: all right it's uh not a long section that we read today and it's quite simple this sending that jacob does of joseph uh to his brothers in shechem i want to focus on three aspects here I've said before that the Christological uh, imagery, the typology of Joseph is heavy. Um, You don't really have to dig very uh, hard for it. It's right there. It is kind of just screaming at us. It's right there in our face. And this is one aspect of it. The father sends the son, and I want to... kind of meditate on that or think about this as it relates to Christ, and then, and then kind of transition to what that means for us, the Father sending uh, the Son and then the Son sending us. Um, and then I want to uh, kind of touch on why he's sent to Shechem. Uh, that's uh, the last thing we'll talk about. Okay, so uh, they're in Hebron, and uh, Hebron's about 60 miles from Shechem. So this is, we're looking at about a week's journey here. So it's, it's, a, it's a good distance away. Uh, and then he eventually goes to Dothan, which is about 13 miles north of uh, Shechem, all in the Promised Land. Um, but uh, uh, this, is, this is a considerable journey that he's um, asking him to go on. And it's kind of strange to me that he would ask him to do this just just from a human level, just from a, a fatherly perspective. We know as the readers, we know and maybe Jacob didn't know, um, but it's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that he didn't know how much his his sons hated this particular son. We're told, remember, that they added their hate uh, three times or twice. They, they hated Joseph three times and they envied him. And so he's sending uh, his son uh, a long distance off uh, to essentially oversee them and to bring back a report. Um, uh, remember when Joseph is elevated in, Pot- in uh, Potiphar's house, he's an overseer of the house. Well, if he's being sent to check on his brothers and to bring a report back, he's essentially an overseer of his brothers. That's, that's essentially a function that we're seeing here. Um, maybe, maybe Jacob was blind to this, similar to um, uh, Isaac being blind towards the end of his life. Maybe Jacob is blind to this. Uh, Maybe uh, he knew. Maybe he knew that the resentment was there, and he didn't let that fear paralyze him. And perhaps he prayed in faith that there would be uh, reconciliation between um, uh, his sons. We don't know. None of this is made clear to us. From a typological perspective, we have the father sending his son And uh, the father sends the son to see if it is well with his brothers. And that word well is shalom. Is it peace uh, with uh, his brothers? And of course, we find out it is not peace with the brothers. It is not shalom with the brothers. As Joseph arrives, they start conspiring to kill him. And we're told that his brothers, the sons of Israel are feeding his father's flock in Shechem. So the typology here is that the sons of Jacob Israel. It's not even a typology. They are Israel. They are the patriarchs of Israel. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to feed the father's flock. And what do they do? They're not at peace with uh, the son, so they're not at peace with the father, which is a way of saying they're not at peace with God. And so they kill God, they kill their brother, Joseph, who is a type of uh, Christ, the shadow of Jesus, they conspire to kill. And that is uh, what we are, we are seeing here. So what does that mean? That means that Jacob is sending Joseph to his death. Jacob doesn't know this, of course. But from a typological perspective, uh, Jacob is in the position of God here, the heavenly father, who knows all things. And he knows what he's sending his son to do. As we said during the absolution portion, uh, this is is an Old Testament narratival form of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for the world, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And this kind of omniscient knowing of what he was going to do and what he was going to accomplish um, in in we we kind of went, uh, the New Testament version of that the theological term um, often is the uh, the the pactum salutis, and the, the pactum salutis is uh, uh, a, a Latin term that means the covenant of salvation, and this is a theological concept of this uh, of the tr- of a trinitarian covenant between uh, the different persons of of the Trinity before the foundations of the world. Uh, to send the Son to die for his elect. And we do have phrases in Scripture that talk about Christ being slain before the foundations of the earth. And this is a a theological um, uh, inference that we're drawing from Scripture, um, but I think it's reasonable. It forms a lot of uh, Reformed uh, theology, uh, particularly. So the father sends the son. Uh, he sends the son to be subject to this evil. But in the story of Joseph, Joseph says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's what we see with uh, the sending of, of Christ in, the, in a similar way, uh, Christ um, uh, suffering uh, at the cross uh, results in his resurrection, results in his ascension as the king and the and the savior of the world, just as Joseph does. So these are things we've talked about, we've touched on already, but this is part of what uh, the Father sending the Son does. I would say this this is this is the Christological anticipation is rich, and the archetype here is uh, uh, quite apparent. But, uh, we can, so, the archetype is not just an archetype in a Jungian sense, but it actually happened. It's, a, it's the myth that became fact. This is historical reality. The Father, Heavenly Father truly exists and truly did send his son uh, to die uh, for us. And we can also gather from, from this what it means uh, for us to be sent in, in a similar way, to be sent by the Father on these kinds of missions. And we can look at the way that Jacob and Joseph are interacting here. Jacob speaks to Joseph, and he says this. He says, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? And he says, come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. So Jacob calls Joseph. He says, come. And then he, he says, I will send you to them. He says, he, he says, uh, um, I have this mission for you, but he doesn't elaborate really what it is. Come, I'm going to send you. And what does Joseph do? How does he respond? He responds with availability. Here I am. I am willing to go. It's, a, it's a, a making himself open for the mission that the father has uh, for him. And then the father gives more instruction on what the, what the mission is. You willing to go? I'm willing to go. Okay, here's what you got to do. And that's him potentially knowing that his brothers don't like him coming out to him too. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Joseph makes himself available for service. He makes himself available for mission, and we see this uh, when God calls other men. We see this with Samuel, God, the heavenly father. And this is an interesting progression because this isn't uh, a physical tie of, of fatherhood. Both with Eli and the Heavenly Father, uh, Samuel hears a call from God, and uh, he thinks it's Eli, who's not his father, it's his spiritual father, he's a priest in the temple, raising him up as an acolyte, and uh, Eli says, it's not me, but it's God, and when God speaks next time, say, your servant hears, speak, I'm here, I'm listening, um, And then he gives him more instructions after that. So uh, we have this call and response. We do this a lot in the liturgy, the call and the response. And this is the way that we speak with God. This is the way that we uh, uh, see uh, God uh, calling and sending men. We also see this with Isaiah, kind of a a very famous incident in uh, Isaiah 6. Isaiah is seeing a vision uh, of the heavenly realm. And he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And that's what he does. He sends them. He, he sends Isaiah as a prophet to speak to his brothers. So in every case, the hearer of the father, they make themselves available for mission. And they respond accordingly. They hear the call. They respond to the call Jacob says, uh, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out uh, the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. And we know what happens. He sends him and he figuratively dies. He's thrown into the cisterns uh, or the the cistern, this kind of, this catcher, it catches water essentially. And uh, that's what dothan means. Dothan means two cisterns. Um, and these things are written for our instruction it's a very simple concept but when the father calls you he calls you on mission and he calls you to die he's going to call you he's going to send you and you're going to die Uh, as Bonhoeffer said in his book The Cost of Discipleship when Christ calls a man he bids him to come and die and so we could retool that and we could say "When, when God calls you he sends you, and you will die. <laughs> he, he gives you mission. He gives you purpose, and he has something for you to do. Amen. And that death doesn't always look the same. That death doesn't always mean a physical martyrdom, like it did with Joseph. That wasn't an actual death. Um, but the scriptures would consider it as such. The, Isaac, is, is we're told in Hebrews, uh, that uh, Abraham received him back from the dead. Um, so it's a similar thing with Joseph. And, and so we have, we, have similar ki- we have all kinds of deaths that we can die when, when God calls us. Uh, we have uh, death to self, death to sin, death to the world, death in Christ. There's, there's all kinds of death. And then there's resurrection in all of these things. There's new life in Christ. There's resurrection of the new man. There's resurrection of holiness. There's resurrection to, to a new world. Resurrection in Christ. And all of this follows this pattern of calling, sending, dying, resurrecting. The word uh, send is repeated twice in the passage, he, uh, uh, both from Jacob. Uh, Come, I will send you. Uh, so he sent him. Actually, I guess that second one is from Moses or Joseph, whoever wrote Genesis. Uh, what would you guess is the Greek word used here? Apostello. Mm. Apostle. Apostles are sent ones. Joseph is a type of apostle here. Joseph is apostelloed by his father. Uh, permit me to share a story with you. And so it was on the third day of the week. Dr. Stellick spoke unto Pastor Jack and said unto him, Who is the greatest apostle? And Pastor Jack answered: Some say the Apostle Peter, some say the Apostle Paul. And Dr. Stellick said unto him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly I say unto you that in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 we read, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession Christ Jesus. Jesus is the great apostle. Jesus is the sent one. He is the apostle of the apostles. And what Jesus does is he is sent by the father and then he turns around and he sends his disciples out. And then they turn around and they send people out. We might say the nature of their sending is different. There is such a thing as an off office of apostle. And these apostles generally were ordaining bishops and these bishops were ordaining elders. And so they're sent in a more localized fashion where they're building up the church. But in uh, In uh, uh, John 20, Jesus says this. He says, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Notice, Jesus speaks peace to his brothers. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the new Israel, the new 12 patriarchs. And he's the brother who speaks peace, and he sends them out. And most, if not all, of the apostles died in their missions. Uh, m- much of this is recorded by Eusebius. Uh, some of it we're not totally sure, but they all suffered. They all were martyred. And so the apostles were sent and they suffered and they, they were martyred. Uh, one of the things we see associated with the sending out of the apostles, uh, at least with Barnabas and Paul, is the laying on of hands. And I want to kind of make a few uh, remarks about this in Acts 13. There were prophets and teachers in Antioch. A few of them are named, perhaps exhaustively. We don't know. Um, but uh, the Holy, it says, the Holy Spirit spoke, saying, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So we have the heavenly calling, right? Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, uh, I want to focus on this laying on of hands and this sending out. Um, Well, actually, before I do that, I want to make a comment about the prophets and the teachers here. Uh, Who are these prophets? Who are these teachers that the Apostle Paul is essentially getting his commission from? Of course, he does get directly commissioned by Christ, but the laying on of hands come from these random prophets and teachers in Antioch. What pedigree do these men have? What schools have they gone to? Have they had hands laid on them by the apostles? Scripture doesn't say. I don't, think, uh, I don't think if the Scripture is that concerned about their spiritual lineage in that sense that we should be that concerned about it either. It does matter, but it, it's, it's not immaterial, but it's also it doesn't uh, uh, defunct churches that don't have these kind of apostolic succession claims. What I'm I'm saying is the the Protestant notion of uh, apostolic succession of doctrine is far more important than apostolic succession of uh, tactile laying on of hands. But the laying on of hands is considered a foundational doctrine. In Hebrews 6, we're told this. One of the reasons for that, I think, uh, I submit to you, is that in the Old Testament, the priest... Uh, and and the worshipers and the elders are uh, in various kinds of sacrifices, laying their hands on the sacrifices, imputing the sins of the people onto those sacrifices, slaughtering the sacrifice. And then the priest comes and he starts slinging blood all over the tabernacle. And so that imagery is what (laughs) I, all of the, in my mind every time I see the laying on of hands for commissioning or ordination it's like that guy's going to die now that, because that's what the Bible teaches us every time hands are laid on someone's going to die and the, even, even, in an, even in an unlawful sacrifice way that phrase is used they laid hands on him so there's lawful laying on of hands and there's, un, there's unlawful laying on of hands this is spoken of Jesus they laid their hands on him Um, And um, and then connecting this to uh, sending or apostle on the day of atonement, we read this. Um, Let's see here. Leviticus 16. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. We commonly call this a scapegoat. Uh, th- that's where the term comes from. It comes from this. And he's sent out into the wilderness. We might, we might call it the apostle goat. This goat is sent out, right? The sent goat. And he's sent out into the wilderness, which we actually will get into this uh, next week. But Joseph is wandering in a field where he encounters a certain man. So he is sent out, and then he's wandering in a wilderness of, of a sort, uh, and he can't find his brothers. Uh, but but we'll we'll get to that later. I I think as as Protestants, or particular particularly. Certain, certain streams of Protestantism were very zealous, rightfully so, and I want to maintain that zeal, of, of um, giving all glory and honor to God and, and Jesus. This is what we do. It, but when you start talking the way that the Bible does, that we participate in things that God also does People are like, oh, you can't say that. That's not cool, man. Like, like that we participate in the sufferings of Christ, or or that we are participating in some sense in this kind of sent scapegoat fashion. Uh, there's all kinds of facets to the way the ways in which we participate. Paul says uh, somewhere that his suffering fills up the, uh, the suffering that is lacking in Christ or something like that. It's this very scandalous kind of sounding phrase. But the, the, overall, the overall thing that's going on here is that we are participating in what Christ went through. Christ suffers and dies, but so do we. We suffer and die. And so um, I think even taking on the sins of the people, Christ does this, but in a sense, so do we. We do this with other people. We overlook transgressions. We absorb things into ourselves. Uh, This is uh, something that I think is part and parcel to our union with with Jesus. Uh, We are united to him and we participate with him in uh, in these things. And I also, this is one of the reasons why, why we do confirmation. Because when in Hebrews 6, there is this, distinction between baptism and the laying on of hands and the laying on of hands has this element of now you go and die it has this element of sending uh, as well so that's uh, that's something to uh, consider in the uh, the context of being sent on these heavenly missions lastly the city of Shechem it appears three times in our passage it's where uh, Joseph's brothers are, are feeding the flock and uh, it's, it's strange to me, at least, that they're in Dothan, so why, don't, why doesn't it just say that they're in Dothan? Why, are we, why, is, why is the writer taking up time to tell us, well, they, they went to Shechem, and then they moved to Dothan. They thought they were in Shechem, but they weren't. And it's mentioned three times in, in the past. Why mention Shechem at all, essentially? You could just say they were in Dothan. But but the author seems to go out of his way to tell us that uh, Shechem is involved here. And uh, I would would submit to you that uh, there's a larger point being made here, and I can only situate it in a kind of typological scheme. And that is, that Shechem is a type of Calvary, and we've already gone over this. But Shechem has appeared in our story already. Uh, His brothers, Um, The Shechem is where is where the Dinah incident occurred. Um, And then his brothers committed this massacre of innocence. They they spilt innocent blood at Shechem. And then we have a tree where their idols are buried. Sin is buried at a tree. And then we have consecration to God. Uh, J- Jacob's family reconsecrates themselves uh, to God we see this in Joshua as well after the land is conquered they do the same thing they put away their, they're at Shechem they put away their idols they have this covenant renewal ceremony and they dedicate themselves back to God they, it's this, this covenant renewal repentance uh, place Also we have, since we're we're on the topic of uh, apostleship, uh, I I suggested when we went over uh, the Shechem incident, the Dinah incident, that Shechem himself, son of Hamor, was a type of Paul. He initially violates a woman, and then he's converted, and then he goes and he converts a bunch of Gentiles. And then he dies. (laughs) Uh, And so if we're we're on this topic of sent ones, I think Shechem is is one of these sent ones. Um, Shechem is also the first place that Abraham arrives when he enters the the promised land. He sets up an altar. It's the first place Jacob arrives when he enters the promised land. He sets up an altar. So Shechem is this typological calvary. It's also the entrance point. We call it the entry port into the kingdom. Um, And if we bring this forward, that's what the cross is. That's our entrance into the kingdom. That's, that's how we come into the promised land. That's, that's, that's the first stop we make. There's no one coming into the promised land if we don't go through the Shechem Calvary. Shechem is also where Jacob, he purchases burial grounds. And this is where Joseph's bones wind up at the end of Joshua. So. Joseph's mission starts out where he passes through Shechem, and he, his mission ends, essentially, in Shechem. His bones are brought back there, and he's buried uh, with uh, his family. And, of course, this is in the hope of, of resurrection. Uh, so he finishes his earthly mission, and his bones are laid to rest uh, here in uh, Shechem. So when God sends a man, he, he sends him to die. He sends him to, to suffer. And that looks different for all of us. But uh, the way in which uh, it's the way that God redeems men, he redeems the one he, he sends, and he redeems uh, the people that he comes into contact with and who he sends them to. And that's what the story of Joseph teaches us that this sent one uh, redeems uh, what, uh, what he was sent to do, what he was sent to do. Is it peace with your brothers? Well, not yet. But then he dies, and he resurrects, and then there is peace with his brothers eventually. And that's uh, that's what Christ has done. That's what he is doing. That's what he continues to do. And he does it through you. He 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 you, he he sends you out as apostles. He sends you out as as little as little Christ. You're sent out every Sunday back into the world to die and redeem. It's not just dying for the sake of dying, but it's dying for the sake of others. It's dying so uh, others may live. So let's pray. The charge is this. Respond to God's call. Make yourself available. When God speaks, your response is, here I am. Send me. But know that when God calls, he sends. And when he sends, you will die. You will suffer. It will happen to you because that's what happened to the capital S sent one, the great apostle Christ Jesus. He was sent by the father to die, but to die so that others could live. Your apostolic mission may not look like Paul going all over uh, the Mediterranean. It may look as simple as, hey, go check on your brothers for me. It may seem insignificant, but no sending by God is ever insignificant. What started as go check on your brothers ended with Joseph feeding the world. Your calling, your sending, your little daily deaths are not insignificant. They matter. They redeem. So respond to your father's call. Here I am. Send me.